So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. So today we have an awesome guest, my friend Will McCormick. Will is an actor, a producer, a screenwriter, and a film director. Will is a prolific storyteller and performer. You may know him for his appearances in TV and film, including The Sopranos, American Outlaws, and A Wrinkle in Time, just to name a few. He's also known for writing the screenplays for Celeste and Jess Forever and Toy Story 4. Will also co-wrote and directed the short animated film If Anything Happens, I Love You, a film that shares the grief of two parents who lost their daughter in a school shooting. It's an exploration of grief that has impacted so many people and has been met with enormous success, including the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. Holy crap. Will, thank you for being here today. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Thanks so much, Lucy. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, it's fun to talk to you for many reasons, not the least of which is that you and my husband kind of grew up together. And so, you know, after the show, we can just sort of trash talk my husband and all the crazy things he's done with you, perhaps in tow. Trash talk, but also express so much gratitude and joy for the human being that Thad McBride is, because I love your husband. He's pretty, pretty awesome. He's like the wind beneath my wings. He's the wind beneath my wings. I think I, the one thing I will say about that, of a long list of attributes that I love, is that he, if he is your friend, he is your champion. And I've, I've always felt so supported by him. You know, it's, a, it's such a nice way to start this podcast because, yeah, without him, I would be in the fetal position. Um, people think I'm this strong, independent woman, and I am, but not without support, including him. And so... I can't wait for him to listen to this. He'll be like, wow, could you say that to me in person every now and then? <laughs> <laughs> He'll be like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. The way we talk about our spouses to other people, it's like. Right. You know, or at funerals, right? Like, don't you want to be at your own funeral? Like, and like hear how much people like you? Well, we will probably get to it later, but like winning an Academy Award is like being at your own funeral. Okay, so so let's start there. I mean, okay. you you won a freaking Academy Award. That's kind of legit. And, you know, if people remember when this podcast drops, what just happened at the last Academy Awards with Will Smith and Chris Rock, tell me about what it's like to win an Oscar, what it took to get there, and then any commentary you have on Hollywood, because, man, I know it's a little bit nuts. I mean, first of all, RIP Will Smith. I mean, that was a, that was not a great moment the Academy Awards. Like, really tragic. I mean, so sad to me. Yeah, I felt like there was a lot of unprocessed trauma that came out in real time. And I feel a lot of things, but I also felt compassion for him because I felt like he was kind of having a nervous breakdown, which I think we've all had in one form or another, but he was having it in front of the world, like in real time. And uh, even the way he was speaking in his speech was, was totally disassociative. And I thought, oh my God, this is, I mean, Chris Rock was right. That was one of the greatest moments in television history, but not for the reasons it should have been. But I, yeah, I, I won an Academy Award the year before, and it was also, <laughs> it was also kind of traumatic. I mean, 
there's a lot of pressure leading up to it. And um, I was so proud of the film and, um, and cared about the film for so many reasons. And the journey of the film was so fun, but actually campaigning for the award and all of the rigors of a campaign are not that fun. And it's a lot of pressure. And the actual night of the event, I remember going and thinking, oh, wow, I'm, I, you know, I'm wearing an Armani suit. I'm with my wife and this is going to be fun. And I, I just sort of was thinking, I can't wait to put sweatpants on. Yeah. And go back home. Yeah. And we won. They called our name. And by the way, did you know, you, you really don't know until they open that envelope? You really don't know. You really don't know. I mean, we were favored to win heavily because, you know, people send you all these updates. And um, so I wasn't shocked when they called our name, but um, I was happy and I wasn't nervous at all. I felt like this is an art award, which maybe there shouldn't be art awards at all. And I thought, you know, I've done this film, you know, we've created this film about parents who've lost children. I've talked to several mothers and fathers who've, you know, lost their own kids and have been so inspired by their courage that certainly I can go up on stage and talk for 30 seconds about a pretty silly art award. But I got to stage and, and there's a big clock that tells you how much time you have left to speak. And by the time it was my turn to speak, it was on zero. Oh no, the gong. The gong, yeah, the gong. And because um, they had started the timer when we got off from our seat, not when we got to stage. And I had ended up dropping a line from my speech and I forgot to thank three people who were really important to me. It was the first line of my speech. And I come off the stage and I was pale from just embarrassment and regret. And the woman who handed me my Oscar said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. I, I just forgot to thank someone um, who was really important to me, three people actually. And she said, oh my God, I've been doing this for 30 years. And every single person who's ever walked off stage has said that, like, don't be hard on yourself. Try to enjoy this moment. And I did my best not to be, although it was hard. And then all of a sudden, all of the texts and emails came in and, and hundreds came in. And it did feel like I was sort of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life in that moment. And and, and the Academy Award was sort of like Clarence because I, you know, I, I've been working in Hollywood a long time and I didn't sort of win an Academy Award and feel like, oh my God, now I've made it. I feel like there's a lot of luck involved and I was in the right place at the right time. But to have messages from teachers that I had in second grade and people that I went to school with and people that I studied in Africa with and if everyone shows up in that moment and I felt so forgive me if this is mawkish in any way but I felt so rich and spirit like I felt like so connected and I felt like every single person that I had ever met in that way was somehow connected to me and it was so rich and so psychedelic too it was incredible it was an incredible moment so if anyone ever has the opportunity to win an Oscar they should for that reason alone <laughs> well, and it, it speaks to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, that is what your funeral might be like. That is what hopefully people say about you when you're not there. But like those moments of validation, but more importantly, connection are so meaningful. Yeah, it means everything, really. Especially when you're in a creative field. I mean, my brother's in a creative field. He did the music for this podcast. And, you know, I've seen what kind of sweat and tears and vulnerability come with being in a creative space. And I mean, you've been grinding it out for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm, if I'm right, well, t tell me if I'm right. It's not just about the awards. It's about the process and the journey and the stories you're telling. That's actually why I invited you on the podcast is because you are someone who has sort of grappled with your emotional health, your physical health in really hard ways. And I think has channeled 
that knowledge and self-awareness into success as you can define it in many different ways. I mean, a lot of people would define success as like, I won an Oscar. But to me, and I think to you, you tell me, success is also about enjoying those moments and enjoying the process. Talk to me about your, to use an overused word, journey of becoming who you are now, not just on the stage winning an Oscar, but who you are now as like an integrated person, body and mind. Oh my God. Well, um, I'm a work in progress. Welcome to the club. First and foremost. And um, I'm, I'm on the path. I mean, I live in Hollywood and um, I'm a father and a husband. I mean, what, what can I tell you? You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of my life and I have high cholesterol and they just put me on a statin. Oh man, there's nothing like a Lipitor prescription to make you feel like you're old. You're like, dude, isn't that for like old guys? Oh, wait a minute. I, you know, I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't eat meat. And my cholesterol was shockingly high and I had to go take a CT scan and I have calcium on my LAD artery, which he called the Widowmaker. And I'm like, wait a minute, I run four times a week. What is so I have heart disease in my family. Anyway, I'm thinking about mortality now at this point in my life. And um, look, I try to live a, a, a spiritual path. I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to therapy. I go to couples therapy and I meditate and I exercise and I try to eat well. My, my mental health is something that I try to put um, first because if I'm not right in my brain and in my heart and in my soul, I feel like it affects every single facet of my life, my work, my parenting, uh, and being a husband. So, but it's hard, you know, we get busy and it's not something that, you know, people our age were told to put first, you know? And I think that there's gotta be a way to do that that doesn't feel like we're being selfish or it doesn't feel like we're being self-involved, that we're allowed to take care of ourselves and that mental health is a human right, right? Like we all have a right to, to clean mental health and that takes work. You said it. I think one misconception out there, and this is part of why I'm doing this podcast, is that mental health doesn't apply to me, right? Like people think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to my great aunt, Judy, who lived in the attic and was a little bit off the rocker. When having mental health is actually part of the human condition, it's part of who we are. It's like, it's a feature, not a bug. We all have mental health. We all have moods. We all have anxieties. We all have fears. We all experience grief and loss. We all have relationships to food, alcohol, each other. And those phenomena make up our mental health. And if we don't address those issues in a proactive way, then we can set ourselves up for mental illness. I mean, people are set up for mental illness by genetics, by environment, and by their own behaviors, et cetera, and habits. But I think it can be very freeing for people when I talk to patients about like, look, you have mental health. It's not a question of if you have it. It's whether or not you connect the dots between your mental and physical health and your everyday lived experience. So you will have been someone who's grappled with addiction and has faced the uncomfortable, unpleasant realities that a lot of people aren't either equipped to or ready to face. I mean, I see a lot of people who are struggling with addiction, whether it's to sugar or alcohol or I have a patient who's addicted to crack cocaine. They're not necessarily ready or they're not willing and they're not able to face those really, really hard parts about themselves, yet they are the seed of a lot of their physical health problems. So if you're willing to, I'd love to hear about how you like how you got to a place where you were able to face that unpleasant part of your, your mental health. Yeah, that's, it, it, I, I, I'd love to tell you. I, I mean, you know, there's a long, I drank for a long time and, and abused drugs for a long time, uh, decades. So when I was 12, I was at a party 
in Plainfield, New Jersey, and I got a hold of a six pack of Bartles and James wine coolers. And I drank all of them and I blacked out and I threw up and um, I peed on myself and I woke up and I thought I cannot wait to do that again. Wow. Yeah. And so this is a 12 year old boy. And, and, you know, just thinking about being a dad now and thinking like, oh, my God, like this was the 80s in New Jersey. Like there was less rules then, you know. And no phones, no, you know, you could disappear for days, you know. But I do have some type of allergy to alcohol. I, I think a lot of people would feel that and think like, well, that would maybe, I don't want to do that again. But there was something about, I don't know, my physical composition that liked feeling that sensation. And I think that there's, you know, psychological reasons too that were a pathway for me for wanting to feel like I should disappear. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself from a young age. I have two very highly successful, motivated older sisters um, who I always felt like I was less than. I idolized them. I worshiped them. But also on the flip side of that, I felt like maybe I could never be, you know, as smart and as successful as they were. It's a lot of pressure to prove yourself as a kid. You know, I went to college and I had moments of of not drinking and of course moments of not using drugs, but I drank pretty consistently or tried to as much as I could from a really young age. Um, I went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm giving the commencement address this year, ironically. Oh my gosh, let's not forget to talk about what that's going to be about. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, and um, I fell in love with two things. I fell in love with alcohol more, but I also fell in love with art. And I, you know, I became a, a writer and an actor and I worked at the movie theater there and I just immersed myself in story, which felt like a, a life raft for me and a way to make sense of the world and, and a way that I could fit in the world when I didn't feel like maybe I totally belonged. But I knew that when I was in story, I felt like, oh, I can do this. And it was the first time in my life I, I ever felt like, oh, I, I can do something like I can be somebody with this. But, you know, I drank and I drank and I drank and I did loads of drugs and I don't have to give you my whole drug log, but I moved to Manhattan after Trinity and I worked in a bar and I did, you know, I lived my life as an actor and, and wanted to be a writer and I fell, di fell deeper into addiction. And then I, I was living in LA and, and really I, I got fired from a job and I got dumped by a girlfriend and I was just getting into trouble and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop drinking and I couldn't stop doing cocaine, really. And the more I tried to create rules around it, and the more that I tried to make excuses about it, the worse it got. And I felt really, really scared, like I didn't know how to stop. And I, by the grace of God, I walked into an AA meeting on Roxbury in Beverly Hills. They were really nice. They had coffee. It was a nice meeting. And I sat down and they started to read the 12 steps. And they said that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And I wept just sobbed. I started crying and I couldn't stop. And I remember this nice old man next to me gave me a handkerchief, you know, and I had felt like an alcoholic from the age 12. And I didn't stop until I was 33. And I really felt like there's, you know, I should be dead. I mean, you know, the amount of stuff I did and the stupid situation I put in, I know a lot of people who are dead that didn't make it, you know, in that moment, I really did have a an epiphany. I had a spiritual awakening and I thought, um, I don't ever have to drink again. So for me, it was admitting that I had a problem and removing the shame around that. And that helped by being around other alcoholics. It was very shame-based. Yeah. And it's so interesting you talk about that because, and by the way, thank you for sharing that story because it's so moving and powerful. And 
I can picture you. I mean, you're a good storyteller, as I would expect. I can picture you walking into that place, probably feeling kind of vulnerable and like washed up. And then maybe the way you described finding acting in college, it was a life raft. Like you were handed this sort of helping hand and then a, and then a handkerchief. And that's pretty powerful the way you describe it. And I'm sure it was a moment you'll never forget. I never forget. And I always go back to that moment. And I love AA, honestly, uh, because it's the, the best feeling in the world to see a newcomer, like someone who's just had their first day or one week. Look, there's lots of ways for people to handle addiction. And I'm, I'm not saying AA is the right way for you, but it was the right way for me and the right way for millions of others. But um, there's something so inspiring and so invigorating to see someone come in and believe that their life can change. I mean, that's like the definition of faith and hope. And you see it all the time and you see it in AA and it works. And it's so inspiring to see people even want to change that I'm reminded of how much gratitude I have for that moment. I mean, it's incredible. Well, and capturing the self-awareness that you have, I, I, I would only imagine sort of keeps you propelling yourself forward. The shame piece is so relevant. I think we all experience guilt in our lives. We all experience shame and guilt I think is described as, you know, I, I've done something bad. Shame is I am bad. Mm -hmm. And shame is, as I don't need to tell you, but for so many people, the birthplace of just further addiction and further behaviors that are self-sabotaging. And so it's so elegant the way you described that you were able to take away the shame in that meeting and then open yourself up to recovery. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was, it was instant. I knew in that moment, um, that, you know, for me, drinking was a really, really shitty job that I had for 20 years. And I kept having to punch the clock. And in that moment, just by saying it out loud in the presence of other people, who had also reached, you know, that same type of despair in their own way with their own bottom. I knew that there's something about admitting it in front of a group of other people who just treat you with kindness and compassion that just sort of dispels the shame around it. Immediate. I mean, it was immediate. And, and and it's so interesting to think about how the compassion for oneself and then naming our problems has so much power. It's why I recommend to patients, for example, everything from journaling to therapy to, you know, AA is just, you know, you, you disarm a lot of scary thoughts about our own selves and our and, and, and the shame by naming them and putting them on paper because they, they become less scary and powerful when you can share them with even yourself, but then with other people. The, the AA model is, is really, really, it's extraordinary. I, I mean, AA has saved millions of lives it's it's free the the steps i'm just talking to the audience who's listening here not to you because you know this already but the steps are really applicable to anyone who's trying to make a change whether it's leaving on a toxic relationship or quitting alcohol because as you said so rightly making change and particularly with an addictive substance is extremely difficult. It's actually the hardest part of my job is helping patients recognize that they have the opportunity for change giving them the hope that they can and then the tools and then helping them take that hard right turn on whatever it is. Even if it's as mundane as like starting an exercise program, but to, to leave behind decades of an addiction and think that there's hope beyond it. I mean, that takes inner strength. It takes support and it takes that cycle of what you just described of seeing the newbie come in and you watching that person get the help. And then, I mean, I think you, I don't know if you still have a sponsor or if you sponsor people in the program yourself. Yeah, I do. And I have, and um, you know, I've been through the steps 
as a sponsor and I've been through the steps as a sponsee and, and yeah, the relationships I've made in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I, I, I walked in and, and I admitted that um, I had a problem and, um, and that I couldn't control it and that I was powerless. And on the flip side, I just received grace and compassion and the like unconditional love and support from strangers I'd never ever met who had the same problem. I mean, it's really, it makes you believe like in humanity, honestly, that you can rely on total strangers for love and support and it actually works. I mean, some of my relationships, I mean, outside of my family, like the relationships I've made with uh, men and women, pr- primarily men, because I go to men's meetings because I like them more, but um, and Alcoholics Anonymous are the strongest I've made in my life. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know. What do you think? It's, it's, I'm imagining they're, they're like, free of judgment and free of shame, which is like, isn't that kind of the birthplace of good relationships wherever you go, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you're encouraged to practice these principles in all these affairs. And I'm just reminded I should probably bring some of my, more of my AA life and the way that we treat each other to my, to my daily life. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we treat each other pretty badly and, and like in, in a lot of ways, particularly in the public space, right? Like, I mean, look at the vitriol and anger and like hyper reactivity out in the public square. I mean, you just need to go on Twitter to realize how, how outraged and angry and reactive we are. And by the way, people can be addicted to anything, including social media or alcohol or food or whatever. I mean, so to me, like you represent what I hope my patients can get to. And frankly, what I hope for myself, which is like a humility and self-awareness that that then applies to, to all the parts of your life, as you described, being a father, being an actor, uh, being a husband and being a human. And so what's interesting about you is that you've like, by necessity, you kind of face this, this like demon to use an overused word and then have used that knowledge in other ways. I mean, I'm going to guess you're not a perfect person. I'm going to guess you have flaws and that you're a work in progress. I mean, that's why we say it's, it's the program. It's in recovery. It's like, it's kind of like why we say why we're practicing medicine. Cause I'm still practicing. I'm still practicing being yeah. a human too. Yeah. I mean, you can probably interview my wife later and she could maybe tell you that I'm <laughs> the dirty laundry insane, but I, I do one thing. <laughs> I, one thing that is true and it's been a pretty simple, you know, doctrine for me is, and, and I feel so lucky too. It, the irony is, is that I feel so lucky to have abused drugs and alcohol for decades. Like, I don't regret any of that now. None of it. What do you, what do you mean? Tell me about that. I was given a whole new way to live, which was I shouldn't be here. And so, like, I'm, I'm literally living through, I mean, look, I don't, I, I don't wake up this way every day. But when I go to an AA meeting, I can tell you I walk out and I feel this way. And that's why I love to go to AA. It's a whole, my whole life is an active, it's just like, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. Father, I mean, it's the whole thing was just a moment of grace that I got to, that I got to live in. Well, and the gratitude you have, I mean, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, ways to help calm anxiety, ways to help get through the day. And some of that is about practicing gratitude. You know, you see mugs at TJ Maxx that say, practice gratitude. You see journals at, in the checkout line at Target, practice gratitude. Um, and so I think for some people, it's, it's like work to do that. For other people, perhaps like you, it's just part of what you do. It's like, you're, it's like, a, it's like woven into the fabric of who you are, but I think gratitude and then recognizing the blessings we have, whether it's self-awareness or a roof over our head is part of health. Yeah. Yeah. I, amen. I do it and I do do it and I have to do it. And it gives me instant perspective. Let's take a quick break. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. 
Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. And welcome back to Beyond the Prescription. I have people come into my office all the time and they say, am I an alcoholic? Do you think I'm drinking too much? I'm worried about my drinking or the other way around. They tell me how much they drink. And I can automatically tell if they're not telling the truth because I know my patients pretty well. I'm not a mind reader, but I like know my patients. I also have a family history of addiction. I mean, who doesn't? If you ask enough questions in one's family, like mental health, it's like having heart disease. Like it's everywhere. Mental health issues. So people ask me all the time and, 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 and they'll ask me like, where's the line? Like how much is too much? And how do I know if it's a problem? And, and tell me what you think about what I tell them as an answer. I tell them, and of course it's nuanced, but I, well, I will talk about, there are kind of two ways I think about this. One is the quantity of how much you're drinking. And then the other is the relationship with it. So there's some people perhaps like you that, you know, one drink is one too many. And there's some people who drink, you know, a hearty amount, but their relationship with it is such that it's 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 healthy they're not using it to self-medicate pain they're not using it to have the their anxiety quieted to walk into that party they're not using it to numb uncomfortable feelings and the question is always a nuanced one and the answer is nuanced too because who doesn't use alcohol or substances to kind of enjoy the party more or be a little more funny or right. So it's, it's like, it's not a, there's no line in the sand, which is why I find it so ridiculous that people will, you know, in, in the, in the sort of medical literature, it's like, well, seven drinks a week for a woman and 14 for men. It's really not that cut and dried. I, I, I'm not a doctor, but I have one simple answer that's proven to be true for me over time, which is, if you're asking if you have a drinking problem, you probably do. Because people who don't have drinking problems don't ask if they have a drinking problem. It is a great way to put it. And now all my patients who are listening are not going to ask me if they have a drinking <laughs> problem. I'm kidding. Like, you know, my wife has a very normal relationship with alcohol. Like I've seen her, we've been together forever now. I've seen her tipsy a couple times, maybe at a wedding or, but like, it's something that it's never occurred to her. Like, She's never thought like, oh, do I have a drinking problem? You know, because she doesn't have a drinking problem. Look, we can all get loaded in New Orleans here and there and like go out or there's Mardi Gras or there's Super Bowl or something that's happening. But, you know, normal people don't do that. Normal drinkers. Right. And the same thing applies to, again, like if someone's asking, do you think I have a food addiction? The answer is probably yes. And again, we all are addicted to food because we have to eat. But but the question of am I addicted to food and, and I'm, is really the same as for alcohol. Am I abusing it and using it to numb uncomfortable feelings and it, at the expense of addressing those feelings in a more productive way. So like, let's acknowledge that whatever one is addicted to, whether it's alcohol, cocaine, food, Twitter, the internet, you know, pornography. I mean, people are addicted to a whole lot of different things. It serves in a, in a very simplistic way of saying it, it serves to kind of numb unpleasant thoughts and feelings and, 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 to, and to numb out some shame too. It's, it's, it's such an interesting question to me, one that I don't know the answer to. You know, there's some people who say in the world of trauma, like Gabor Mate, who's a trauma doctor, who will say that addiction is not at all genetic. It's, you know, you might think it's genetic because it's in your family, but that's maybe because it's, it's behavioral and there's a lot of trauma in that family. Um, I think it's probably genetic and probably behavioral and probably you know, maybe you're born more sensitive to external stimuli and you didn't have the 
kit of coping skills to manage those feelings, perhaps like you with your sisters being uber successful. And so I wonder what you think about it. Like, is it genetic? Is it trauma related? Is it behavioral? Is it like you just liked alcohol more than the next person, which I don't believe at all. Uh, I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Have you tried to parse out the, the origins of it? I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting question. And I think it's probably different for everyone, but I, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I think I do have a predisposition to it, whether that's a gene or not. I, I, I don't know. And I think that there's a little bit of nature nurture. I, I do know that the first time it happened, I felt I couldn't wait for it to happen again. And the, what, the results of it were not good. So there's something there that feels chemical. It's something chemical because a lot of kids who drank that much that Mitch Bartles and James would say, oh my God, that feels awful. I never want to do that again. And you yeah. didn't have that. And that is a common theme in people with addiction is that they felt a feeling they want to get back to, even if they know it wasn't healthy for them. And what yeah. that is, who knows? I'm just hoping I can get an ad campaign for Bartles and James off of this podcast. Oh my God, totally. I mean, guess who I'm going to for advertisers? <laughs> I'm kidding. Tell me how your health is now. I have heart disease, I told you. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. It's so fascinating that you is this slender, athletic you know, specimen of health and self-awareness has coronary disease, which is just for people who don't know is, is cholesterol plaque in the coronary arteries. And you, I love that, you know, the word LAD, the left anterior descending artery, which is the main artery that supplies blood to our heart. Um, you really can't tell by looking at somebody if they have coronary disease, it's genetic, it's cholesterol informed. It's also informed by high blood pressure, diabetes, cigarette smoking. Um, and so we treat it by, uh, managing cholesterol, managing the other risk factors. And so tell me about that, what you're doing to manage it. I mean, being my age is really just like, you start to feel like a car that just goes into the shop more. Yeah, that's it. And you're like, oh, I need new transmission and that ding's gotta get fixed. And you just like the car goes to the shop more. And then one day, you know, um, I, I'm 48. I have a two and a half year old son. We're about to have another son in a couple months. And um, thank you. I'm so excited. You know, there aren't a ton of advantages to be an older dad, but I think the biggest advantage is that, and, and I'm in a place in my career where I can, I can make, I can really be with him. And, and during the pandemic, I, I, I'll tell you this, I haven't missed a day of my son's life and he's, you know, two and a half, which is really cool. I've never been for a day um, because we were just side by side every day together during the pandemic. And I have an office here at home and I write from the basement. But, you know, so I love being an older father, but I'm also an older father. So I'm just like doing the math. I mean, your kids are your kids are grown. I got one in college, one about to go and then a daughter in high school. So, yeah, like talk about feeling old. But yeah. So, look, we're all just trying to make as deep a run as possible in life. But I yeah, I, I really like, I'm really grateful for this time when they're young, but maybe I sound greedy. Like I want to be around when they get older too. So, you know, I, I eat really healthily, healthily and I exercise a lot and I was stunned to go to the doctor and hear that my cholesterol was through the roof. I went and took a CT scan and, um, got a coronary calcium score and uh, my doctor told me that I had significant plaque on my LAD artery. And I was like, oh, my God. Then he referred to it as the widow maker. Which, by the way, I mean, not to not to rag on other doctors, but like we don't need to use that terminology. You can explain to someone how how significant it is without using that colloquialism. Anyway, not to mention that, like, there, especially if you're on the cholesterol medication and you're exercising like that, there's a really good chance you're going to be like hit by a bus before you die from coronary disease. 
To, to, well, that's great to hear. So he gave me a statin. and um, That's appropriate. Totally. And I take the statin and um, I said to him, so what's the next step? And um, I'm going to have a, um, you know, a meeting with the cardiologist at UCLA and, and we're going to keep an eye on it. But he said that he thought that we could get this you know, under control in a couple months and that we could lower my cholesterol. And I, he said, you could live to be 100 and not die from this. So You absolutely could. And um, this is where if I may, without assuming things about anyone, because you have this diagnosis that on the one hand can be terrifying, but also may amount to, to nothing if you take the cholesterol medication and you exercise and you maintain good blood pressure, et cetera. It, it could be the moment where you channel that kind of like gratitude that you got from not dying from addiction to be like, well, it's one day at a time. I mean, that's the AA mantra. I don't know. But again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. My husband would tell you I love doing that. So you, you talk. You're totally right. And, and um, you know, when he first called me, I, I think I was stunned because I was thinking like, oh, well, I, you know, I run and I, I don't eat meat and I, I don't smoke or drink and haven't for a long time. And I, I take care of myself. And it's, it's something that's just actually, you know, I inherited. And, um, and he said, today, today is a great day. And, uh, um, this is totally controllable. And I, I did, I felt so grateful that I have healthcare and I felt so grateful that I have, um, a great doctor. And there was, I immediately saw the flip side. I was like, Oh, this is, I'm so lucky, you know, like this is not a big deal. Yeah. Although you're, you are, of course, I mean, the worry about that is, is, is going to be there and that's normal too. Um, we all have things, you know? Yeah, and the early detection is really, really good because the Lipitor or the statin, whatever one you're taking, helps. It not only helps reduce your cholesterol levels and make your number look prettier, but it helps stabilize the existing plaque. And so, like, you're doing everything you can. It just shows how un unfair things can be. Like, if you, you know, I have patients who, you know, they're vegan, they do yoga, they meditate, they exercise, like, you know, on their whatever machine. And they get breast cancer and they're like, it's not fair. And, and it's it's not at all. It doesn't make any sense. And it's sort of evidence of how we really don't have control over things that we sometimes think we do. In fact, one of my patients a year ago told me that it actually helped her with her anxiety getting breast cancer. Not that she was so, but, but it helped her recognize what's in her control and what isn't. And then kind of freed her from trying to control so many other things that were, that were uh, bothering her. And she said to me recently in a follow-up that the breast cancer kind of saved her life because she let go of some things she was trying to control that were not actually controllable. This is not to glamorize getting breast cancer. It's not to glamorize having coronary disease. I just think, I mean, the perspective you have is, I think, particularly healthy and one that I think we all hope to have when we're faced with some sort of adversity health-wise because we all face that stuff as you said you know and I'm familiar with this too we're all like these cars and we go to the shop you know every now and then for tune-ups and in Hollywood you go in for the you know the the full body work <laughs> right full body work yeah you know nip tuck here there butt lift right yeah I mean the Brazilian butt implant I mean when are you going to get that Mine looks really good. My my Brazilian butt lift is it looks amazing. Um, no, it's walking through Beverly Hills sometimes and just seeing what is actually happening on people's faces, and it starts to become like living in LA long enough. You just start to feel like it's normal, and then you're like, oh no, this is not this this is not normal. Yeah, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. 
Will, tell me what you're going to talk about at your commencement speech. So you're giving the commencement speech at Trinity College. That's really a big honor. It's a big honor. Although, you know, I kind of felt like Larry David because they, the, the, I love this president of Trinity College. Her name is President Joanne Berger Sweeney. And she's phenomenal woman and just such a leader and I'm such a big fan and she was in LA and invited me to have breakfast and for me it was like having breakfast with a rock star I just love this woman and then she asked me to give the commencement address and I, I thought oh my god I, of course yes um, and then I drove home and I was like on the four or five thinking I think she asked me to give the commencement address to the class of 2020 at the 2022 reunion because they never got it. And then, of course, I immediately felt like, is that slightly less distinguished to do it? I <laughs> like, and I was like, oh, my God, no, amazing. And now I'm thinking, like, of course, I'm asked to give the commencement address to the class of 2020 at the 2022 reunion. It's unconventional. And um, it felt sort of like unorthodox, like my own path. So but I am going to talk about my sister, Bridget, who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan. Um, she's really cool. She gave the commencement address at Trinity in 2013. And um, I called her and I said, um, I'm giving the commencement address at Trinity. And she immediately responded, oof, tough genre. What can you say that hasn't already been said? And I thought, oh, God. Yeah, she's right. And then, of course, I watched her speech on YouTube and it was brilliant. It was like all about sacrifice and was totally breathtaking. But um, I, I think I'm going to talk about um, something that has been profound for me. Sorry, my cat just walked in. Something that's been profound for me in both life and storytelling. And that is, even though I was trying to avoid a theme, it's it's going to be a little themey. And that is surprise. The element of in story and in life has been the most exciting thing for me. And that when I surrender to it and embrace it, it feels like it has paid the most it's been the mo it's been the most fruitful. That is such a great theme because it's sort of about like control and the lack of control and joy and yeah and like and like AA you know I I I felt beaten and I felt lost and um, I felt sort of hopeless and I was surprised that I was given grace and compassion and kindness and there's so many things in my life that turned out to be the worst things that actually were sort of like all pleasure comes wrapped in pain you know what I mean. I can already imagine this being like a, a take the house down kind of talk, not to put pressure on you, yeah. but I want to, I want to watch it live. I mean, maybe you could send us the link, me and Thad. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I mean, I think that I know they recorded and put it on YouTube, but um, I have to write it, but I've been like taking notes here and there and I'm going to write it. I'll write it um, starting next week, but I, I'm excited to write it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, tell me what's next in your career. You, you, you have all these cool pots on the stove. You're like, the jack of all trades, writing, producing, directing. What 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 are you up to now? Um, I am um, I, I'm really I'm in a really lucky place in my career, and that I, everything that I'm working on, I I love, and I'm I'm able to do projects that are meaningful to me. I have a TV company with Rashida Jones, and we're going to make some more TV. But I'm uh, directing a film for uh, HBO Max called Sandcastle, and um, I have written another film called The War and Treaty, which is a love story about a soldier um, who was in Iraq, which is this beautiful, true love story. And I've written another sad short film, um, which we're making with this Canadian company called House of Cool. So I'm spread out over TV and film 
um, in animation and live action as a producer, writer, and director. And it's going to be really fun the next couple of years. Oh my gosh, so much fun. Yeah. And your yeah. eyes are wide open to all the possibilities, it sounds like. Yeah, I guess I'm really lucky. Like, you know, this film, War, The War and Treaty, is about PTSD. And I have another movie with the director from Into the Spider-Verse based on a book by Neil Shusterman called Challenger Deep, which is about suicide. It's a YA, it was a YA hit by a writer called Neil Shusterman. And uh, my other short film is about COVID and an old couple who gets separated and they've been together 50 years and they can't see each other. And they're um, So like everything that I'm working on um, are things that I'm I'm trying to wrestle with my own life. And, and if there's anything I feel proud of in my career, it's that I've been able to move towards work that is meaningful to me and, and make a career out of it. Like, you know, I, I don't, entertainment to me for better or for worse has, has never been a, like, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't go to watch, I don't watch movies to try to like escape from here. I go to watch movies to try to figure out why I'm here. And like, I've been able to bring that to my work and make a career out of it. And that's been really fun. I mean, it's, it's so cool. Well, and, and I mean, to me, there's nothing more interesting than real life. Like I don't read a lot of fiction and, and what you're doing is telling, I mean, you're doing, uh, you're doing some fiction, but you're doing some real storytelling that I think is what people have an appetite for right now is like connecting to others who have, who are dealing with struggle, like whether it's a family who's lost a loved one to gun violence or the couple who was separated during COVID or um, just the other stories you're talking about, the veteran, the PTSD. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it strikes me that, you know, at least in the, the medical space, like mental health is having a moment in the world we live in right now. People are starting to recognize that mental health matters and that it's not, it strikes me that your stories are about sort of survival and post-traumatic growth and, and, and relationships. We talked about that. Did we talk about that book ever? The body keeps the score. Oh yeah, we talked about it when I talked to you a couple of weeks ago. The body keeps the score is is such a. I mean, it's it's the one I recommend to patients all the time. Yeah, that book totally changed my life, and I I read that movie. I read that movie. I read that book to write this movie um, called The War and Treaty because uh, this soldier I've become very close with. He he was in Iraq and he was in way over his head, and he ended up finding a piano in Saddam Hussein's palace, and he would go there at night and write music. Uh, to sort of escape from the horrors of war. And, and he got home and had been through hell. And um, he was, you know, suicidal and living in his car. And he ends up meeting this woman who's a great singer, but um, needs help writing songs. And he writes songs for her and they fall in love. And, and their love is, helps him overcome the trauma of war. But they're a real band called The War and Treaty. And, and I met them and, you know, I've written their real story, their, their, their life story. But it's, um, it was incredible to read that book. and 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 read about trauma and about how art can be healing for trauma and it was a really it was a really impactful book it's it's beautiful it is and it it speaks to this notion of trauma living in our body the 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 inseparability of our minds and bodies and then you're telling that story so that that is a true story it's a true story yeah it's an incredible story we've got um John Legend on board, and he's a EP in the movie, and we're putting it together right now. But um, hopefully, it's announced by the time this podcast comes out. But it's it's incredible. yeah. But everything we're working on is, are things that I feel connected to, and things that I'm like grappling with and trying to figure out. It's so great. It's like it's like a twofer, you know. It's like it's like you're doing your your professional life and sort of growth and and improving your health at the same time. It's like it's awesome. Um, okay, so I always wrap with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who is struggling right now, someone, say, who's like, I don't know, in their 20s, at the beginning of their career, who's grappling with, like, 
either self-esteem or substance issues or just at a hard moment in their life. What would be the top advice or pieces of advice you'd give that person? Be kind to yourself, gentle. The world will do a number on you and you have to be your own best friend and champion. You have to have that soul that's like Thad next to you, right? It's just like kind to you and your champion. And But I, from my own history, I was so hard on myself when I was younger. And, you know, I had this hectoring voice in my head that always told me um, that I wasn't enough, you know? And if you're here, you know, you're, you're young and you're, you're trying for yourself, you are enough. And just be patient, just be gentle with yourself and just be kind to yourself. It's hard, but find whatever way you can to do it. You have to do it. It's so important. Well, you're awesome. I wish you every success in your storytelling and, you know, whether or not you win another Oscar, it sounds like you've kind of already gotten to where you want to be and are just kind of taking it one day at a time, which is awesome. Thank you so much, Lucy. You're the coolest. And I love um, your path here and I love your show and Um, I was totally honored to be a guest and hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my multi-talented brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, Do Dilly Do, A Friend Like You. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. Oh, what a mystery. This crazy world can be And all the wild stuff that I've been through Searching all around for something true Went clear from here to Timbuktu Till I finally found a friend like you No, but I'm not too sure What I'm always searching for but I'm searching each day till the day gets late and I wake up on the floor. But I don't know just where that river flows. Yeah, all I see that's guiding me is the fuzz on the end of my nose.